0: You have two things to be thinking about. The first is, what do I mean? What do I mean as a human being? What, what, what way can I discover what it is that makes me who I am? And the second thing is to discover how you can say what you mean as a human being. You need to discover what you mean. What you mean, not what somebody else does. What do you mean? What is your meaning?
1: Hello, and welcome to the Insight Podcast from the Zion Canyon Mesa, a residency center for the arts and humanities in Springdale, Utah, surrounded by Zion National Park. I'm your host, Logan Hebner. Today we're privileged to spend time with one of America's preeminent writers, Barry Lopez. No need here for a lengthy introduction. If you're here because of him, you already know. And if somehow you're just discovering him please check out our show notes to review his truly remarkable body of work and well-deserved accolades. For me, Barry's writings have been a constant companion since Encountering of Wolves and Men in 1979. And there are sections of his latest book, Horizon, that I revisit just for the sheer power and beauty of language. Until COVID relents, we're interviewing folks in their homes. So please forgive those background noises. In this case, it sounds like maybe a leaf blower or, or an outboard motor, I don't know. Barry will be interviewed by his friend, Professor Jim Ayton. Jim is an award-winning author of seven books on the artists, rivers, and explorers of the Colorado Plateau. He's Professor Emeritus of English at Southern Utah University, where he taught for 40 years. So Jim, how did you meet Barry?
2: I met Barry in 1984 when my colleague, David Lee, Utah's first poet laureate, invited him to my university, Southern Utah University, for a convocation lecture. I had, of course, read all of Barry's work, was a very big fan, and arranged to interview him while he was here. We did the interview, published it, and became friends. Uh, I invited him back the next year in 1985 to work with my American nature writing class. He spent a week at my house. Uh, We developed a, a really good friendship and we kept in touch ever since.
1: Very good. Okay, well, let's get to the interview.
2: So the first question I have is something that you and I have talked about before and something you've written about, and that's the kind of landscapes that you've been attracted to as a writer throughout your career, deserts and the Arctic and the Antarctic. Uh, would you talk a little bit about that attraction and, and why those landscapes in particular attracted you?
0: I think writers... Uh, look back over a lifetime of work and find a reason why they did something, but most of the time the reason isn't any good. So um, I don't know why I'm attracted to those landscapes. Um, I I am. I, I have said to people before that I seem to be attracted to a classical landscape, rather than a Baroque landscape. I would say that a jungle is a Baroque landscape and a desert is a, has the classic lines. Maybe it's a, a resistance to claustrophobic environments. I, I don't know what it is, Jim. Um, they're, they're the easiest places for me to think and work.
2: So you live in the woods of Oregon, which is a—you're uh, in a, a place where you're not as exposed. Yes. What about you know in deserts and in, in the Arctic? Is there something attractive about that exposure?
0: I don't—I don't think so. I have been living here in the woods in western Oregon in this house for more than fifty years now, and. I guess some people say well if you prefer these wide open spacious places uh, how, how why do you live buried in a rainforest <laughs> um I, I i don't know i think the reason i the house is where it is is not because it's in a rainforest it's because it's right at the edge of a whitewater river so The river has a lot more to do Uh with my being where I am than uh, the fact that I live in a rainforest. You know, as a boy, I grew up uh, in the San Fernando Valley in California. Um, I walked out of the house and could see mountains um, and open space uh, in that agricultural valley. Um, So maybe it's partly what I was born to, but when my mother married again and we moved to New York City, to Manhattan, and some people would say that's a claustrophobic environment, but uh, it didn't bother me. Maybe I'm just attracted to spaces where the anthropogenic evidence is thin to non-existent. Or as is the case with the ocean, uh-huh. it's uh, erased in every moment. You know, the wake of a ship is visible and then shortly yeah. after it's gone. So those spaces are the spaces I'm attracted to because there are so there's so little evidence of what human beings do. I feel like it's a blackboard where I can go to work with a piece of chalk.
2: Talk a little bit about the attraction of living next to a river.
0: There, there is a constancy, I guess, to the river. I, I'm thinking about this large question, which is why do you go as a writer to work in this place rather than that place? In my life, generally, cities have been a pass through to where the plain lands. And then I'm gone out into yeah. undisturbed or very little disturbed landscapes the the river is uh i I have been in and watching you know being in the river and watching the river for fifty years and um there's a constancy to it that I like to be present to. I feel a kind of primal quality in the river. I go down to the river every day to reorient myself. And, you know, it's a a migratory corridor for uh, birds. Mm. And usually I'm not down there at the edge of the river very long before I see osprey or bald eagle or great blue heron or mergansers around all the time and uh, river otter salmon, salmon spawn right in front of the house, uh, Chinook salmon in uh, September. So it it's my touchstone for animation. It's much more animated than uh, the forest. There are animals moving through, trees are growing, light is changing, but you really feel it at the edge of the river. It's a whitewater river, so there's water going over or around uh, boulders that don't move at all. So I feel comfortable in those environments away from people and the things that people do.
2: A little bit earlier, you alluded to your um, upbringing in Southern California, and you've, you've written about it, um, I think, pretty powerfully in a couple of different pieces about the influence of that San Fernando Valley on your imagination as a young yes. young boy, I don't want you to rehash all of that. But could you talk about that just a little bit? Well, I'm
0: somebody who believes that, uh, you know, the old thing of nature and nurture, a certain amount of behavior develops uh, because you are the organism that you are, and other forms of behavior and thinking. Uh, developed because of where you matured. So I think landscape plays an important role in the development of personality. And the accident uh, of my growing up in uh, really suburban Southern California in the San Fernando Valley uh, in the 1950s gave me a deep appreciation for As I said earlier, open spaces, meaning possibilities. And I saw wild animals there pretty much all the time. When I was 11, my mother married again. I moved to New York City, and my landscape was buildings and streets. If I'd come when I was younger, or if I arrived there when I was older, it, it wouldn't have had the same effect. So, when I look back at my life, I think how lucky I was to grow up in an environment where, you know, I could see coyotes and the interface I kind of hate that word but between the wild landscape and the cultivated landscape was right there in front of me all of the time. So, I had the advantage of growing up in that area. And then of course, there was no agriculture <laughs> in Manhattan. So, but I adapted to the city. I found myself uh, as excited in that city as I would have been as a child back in California. It was just an excitement about different things. You know, I, I was so excited about being able to go to the theater. And whenever I wanted, and to go to museums and see the this the history of architecture in the city, it, I, I guess that in some ways I'm a highly I have a highly metaphorical mind. When uh, I see something, m- many uh, episodes or narratives start to go through my head. So I'm I'm not. If someone says you write about nature all the time, what I would say is, it's my metaphor. I'm not writing about how to identify mm. birds or things like that. I'm, I'm trying to write about very complicated, persistent problems like prejudice. And because I was steeped in a, natu- a more or less natural environment when I was a child, when I want to write about something like prejudice, I, I, I go back to that imagery. I mean, I've seen a lot of prejudiced behavior in foreign cities, mm-hmm. and you know, but the place I want to go back to where I feel comfortable to explore something is, is the, that kind of environment in which I grew up.
2: Speaking of your experience in New York, in Manhattan, you and I were both educated by Jesuits uh, in the Catholic tradition with their educational and ethical systems. Could you talk a little bit about how that has informed some of your work and some of the ways that you look at the things you want to write about, the things you want to address?
0: Well, I, I would say that I was, it was inevitable that I would be shaped by the emphasis on scholarship that comes with a Jesuit education. Uh, And later at Notre Dame, I was influenced by the requirements at that time, they're no longer in place, to have a very broad, very deep liberal arts education. And the same was true in, in prep school in New York. There was no such thing as free time, you were in class all of the time. And, you know, we we took f- four years of Latin and five years of other subjects in a four-year period. So you were working hard every day. And, and of course that, that shaped me, particularly in terms of ethical behavior. So today I am outraged by Unethical behavior because I was steeped in what is what is ethical behavior and how do you lead an ethical life? I think education, played formal education, played a bigger role in my life than it does for most people. I don't ask myself, for example, in the morning, what's on my mind. I'm I'm thinking in terms of the way I. Um, am am stimulated by say human misbehavior, you know, in my case the prejudice against indigenous people. And that triggers the memory to go back and look at all that's happened in that arena with me over the years and it generates a story. But
2: Mm
0: I I'm having trouble saying this. I don't I'm not much interested in writing about myself. There are some episodes in in my life, uh, like traumatic childhood abuse, that I have had a difficult time writing about, but my attitude about it was, this is not about me. I'm a writer, I have a discipline, I have experienced this, I can look at it with some objectivity, and create an essay that will help other men who've been through this or women help them develop their own framework for coping with the trauma so in in that instance uh, it's different from other work because i'm i'm writing about myself and it's also i'm much more interested in serving my community as a writer, as a clarifier, as a speculator, than I am in uh, being in a spotlight, for example. When I was young and mm-hmm. I moved to Oregon and began making my living as a writer, I would think all the time, you know, in order to make a success of your life as a writer, you've got to be in New York. And over over time, I, I realized that if I stayed out here, I would be able to write about things that are different from what people live, living in an urban environment all the time would write about. And since my thought about good writing is that it's all metaphorical, the, the situation that stimulates narrative and organization and prose can be, you can work it out through a number of different filters. So I've, I've never been a fan of saying, that defining writers by adjectives, you know, a nature writer, a black writer, a Chicano writer. I, I don't. It doesn't resonate with me at all. I'm a human being. I have a certain kind of background. These are the questions I'm interested in. I will try to lay them out as clearly as I can. And then I end by saying, what do you think, uh, you know, the idea that you, uh, uh, mm-hmm. the whole notion of a best-selling author is offensive to me. No woman or man can tell a story that appeals to everybody. It it just doesn't work that way. If you talk about the Iliad and the Odyssey, yes, you know, a, a great cross-section <laughs> of people read those books and are stimulated by them and move on to their own thoughts. But that's not our age now we're living in a different period. People select books because they feel uh, a direct connection. So for me, it's a kind of shoulder shrug if a book is a bestseller or not. I I have friends who are well-known writers who've written a lot of books and can tell you exactly how many copies of every book they've written has sold. I, I can't do that. I've never looked up amazon lists or anything to find out how a book i wrote is selling i it just um it it, that kind of thing seems to be more about taking care of your reputation or or self-promotion than it does with what lies at the heart of story at the heart of story is the effort of the storyteller to um find the language that will help the reader organize um, the, the adumbrations that surround them, the, the lack of clarity around them uh, can, can be put in order by a narrative. So that's why you end up sometimes reading a book, but forgetting the title, forgetting who the writer is, but you're profoundly stimulated by what you've experienced. In in traditional settings, storytellers aren't famous. They are uh, they serve the community by rising up, if you will, during periods of chaos and disturbance, and 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 speaking to that disturbance in a way that leaves people with a better understanding of what's going on and what their role is. But who wrote it, uh, you know, that's not a big deal. Who was the storyteller? Maybe not that important.
2: A little bit earlier, you were talking about uh, prejudice. And in your recent book, Horizon and Elsewhere, you've written about the loss of indigenous cultures and their epistemologies. Um, Can you talk about that some and what those losses are and why their views could help us now or at any time
0: well you start with the idea that nobody knows what's going on we we have these uh, meta narrative structures that that we apply and we say that this explains what's going on you have science for example empirical science that uh, that ha- operates with a conceit that it can tell you what's going on but the 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 loss of a culture uh, and the loss of its language is to me like burning down a house in the neighborhood. You you have no idea what it is that that you've destroyed. The, the colonizing instinct is antithetical to life. The the idea that the world should be more according to your dictates and your imagination and that the people who've lived, who were born to those environments have nothing to offer you of any interest is profoundly stupid. So if, if I say to you that I'm driven by the extent of prejudicial judgment and behavior in my society, it's because I think we would have been better off if we had listened to each other instead of destroying each other. We have uh, the the loss of epistemologies, the, the loss of different ways of knowing is, is catastrophic because without those different ways of being able to look at a problem like global climate change, you're left with what Western culture has to say about it. Everybody else is marginalized. And our belief is that we're exceptional. If you carry it far enough, you say white people are exceptional or American culture is exceptional or Western culture is exceptional. This is rubbish. And it's the hallmark of a failed education, the belief that, you know, and somebody else doesn't know. And if you say, well, they're not educated, you know, you have to say, well, what do you mean by an education? You, you know, we, there are many elements in American culture that enshrine and perpetuate adolescent ideas, and people fall into them and stay there for the rest of their lives. And so they're not grown-ups, and they're of no help when grown-up questions are posed.
2: You've been involved uh, at Texas Tech. In in uh, developing some an educational program, how's it going? And tell me what you're what you've been doing down there.
0: I, I started that work twenty years ago uh, for several reasons. One is that they were establishing a new literary archive at Texas Tech University, and they came to me and said that. They wanted to start by archiving my papers. And that's how I got to know people down there. And as I think is the case with every university, there are exceptional people. If you live believing that it's only you know, the Ivy League schools that are really high-powered intellectual environments, then you don't have much of an education. That's, that's not the case. There are brilliant women and men in virtually all universities and colleges, they, they're there because they love to be there. They love to be in that environment or that landscape. But they're also forced to stay in places where they aren't well paid because of the way employment works. So to believe that all smart people gravitate toward high profile schools is to show a lack of education. So if somebody would say to me, why didn't you go to XYZ University? I My thought is, <laughs> you, you go to a place, or somebody like me does, because you're comfortable and because you like people and because you see the possibility for the kind of education that all of us must eventually go through is there. So I went to Texas Tech because I met so many really remarkable people. My papers were there, so that was the first reason to be there, I guess. But then uh, the university asked the Harvard biologist, Ed Wilson, if he would collaborate with me on—well, actually, they started with him, and then they came to me. Could we build a program that didn't privilege the sciences over the humanities, but educated students in the metaphors of both realms. So Ed Wilson and I designed that program and we instituted it at the honors college at Texas tech. The the other thing that brought me there is that at a certain point in your life, I think a writer has to realize how much bigger the world is than the world he or she knows. And if there has been a strong, good uh, support, uh, uh, if people have read your work, I guess is what I'm trying to say. If that's the good fortune you've enjoyed, then you have to give it back. You you have to put yourself in a position of giving back what you got, uh, especially to younger people. So that was a lot of the driving force for me that I could sit down with students at Texas Tech in honors, in English, in foreign languages, in biology, in all these areas I've worked with in, and we would have very stimulating seminar-like classes. So I felt I'd been given so much, now I'm sitting here in a classroom, uh, giving it to a group of, of people um, whom I probably never see again. But, but my job is to stimulate, to tell a story that helps. And I sit in those seminar rooms and try to talk about things that create a metaphorical environment and allow women and men to explore their own imaginations in the context of whatever the subject of the seminar is. It's the same impulse, I guess, that that came into play when we established this fellowship for a visiting writer in Hawaii. Uh, It's a visiting writer fellowship in ethics and community. Um, So we've had five fellows over the years that come and stay in a private guest house and do their work and then give a lecture before they leave Hawaii. And I've just started... Uh, in these past few months, to to help develop what is called the Barry Lopez Foundation in art and education, and we we will be developing shows for American museums, and tr- those shows will travel. So, what what you're asking me, my response is: work hard, do do the, the best work you can. And as you enter your 50s, maybe, think about passing it on. And don't don't become uh, a gardener of your reputation, I guess, where, no. you, where you're always looking out for yourself. We're a communal mammal, and we depend on interactions with other human beings. And historically, the storyteller was a servant. Uh, the late Uruguayan writer, Eduardo Galeano, has said uh, sa- has said a number of times that the writer is the servant of language. And I, I, Borges might have said something similar uh, as well about being the caretaker of language, the servant of language. That's your Ethical responsibility to take care of language, to use it well and help others use it well in order to express what they imagine. So in at, at this point in my life, I'm I'm writing, I think, as much as I ever did, but I'm much more conscious of going to Texas Tech to teach and working with others to select fellows to go to Hawaii and working with artists to develop a better relationship between art and education and the public than I think we have at the moment. So you're just, you're just mm-hmm. trying to serve. You're tr- you, you know, I, a Navajo woman, when I asked her once about uh, a person who had died, she said his life helped So, you know, what more do you want on your gravestone than that? So I'm trying to do Mm -hmm. that now in my own way.
2: So picking up on um, your teaching experience at Texas Tech, you must have had some young students in those classes and elsewhere uh, who are writers, and they ask you, Uh, what advice would you have for us as young writers and what do you say to them?
0: It depends on the person asking the question. You know, it's not a generic thing. You have to see what the longing is, what is the passion in this person, and make some kind of judgment about a direction in which to go. I I, I would say that for a young writer... You you should pay special attention to the forces that drive you, the passions that drive you, and examine them. Um, I've said to students sometime, not necessarily people who want her to be writers, that the two most important things in a university education are to learn to discriminate and to be discerning. By that I mean two things look very much alike, but they're not. And you you have to discriminate. You can't write carelessly language that just kind of wanders around and, and, and has no moral core or ethical core. And to be discerning means to be aware of the subtleties. So I think if a young person Concentrates on the development of those skills to be discerning and to be discriminating. They're well on their way to to writing a good sentence and making a good paragraph. That sounds pretty abstract, but you know, once we developed digital cameras, everybody thought that they could make a photograph, and and many people have made good photographs. But there is a difference between. Writing is a profession. It's not something that everybody is capable of doing. It's not to say that I'm more important than the next person. The next person might be a conductor. I can't conduct a symphony orchestra, but I'm glad others can, and all I ask them to do is bring up out of the Beethoven Ninth, for example, the, the extraordinary moment when tonal values, the music itself, uh, encounters vocalization. It's one of the most magic moments in the fourth movement of the Beethoven Ninth that I, you can imagine. So if a conductor spends her life trying to trying to coax out of a symphony orchestra an unforgettable musical performance i just i i bow to it i honor it i'm glad to be in the presence of it but i i don't go around thinking anybody can be a conductor if they just work at it it that's you know it's i remember sitting with my granddaughter once watching a professional basketball game in, in Portland. And the guy sitting next to us said that if he had six months to work out, he could be a professional ball player too. And I saw my 10-year-old daughter roll her <laughs> eyes. Um, so that, that's what I mean about an education, you know. No, the people who play professionally are of a different order than most of us. And I think writers, painters, photographers, composers, choreographers, sculptors, it's not true that anybody can do that. And when you develop a technology that allows people to create imagery, like a digital camera, you—you you, the idea begins to erode that... As a photographer, as a writer, as a, as a choreographer, say, there is a skill that you have to master. In addition, there is an ethical component to your life, and not everybody is able to bring ethics and vision to a, to a, a focus like two gases on a torch, you know. So you know, maybe this sounds elitist of me at this point in my life, or I don't care. But it's it the the writer, the <laughs> photographer, the dancer, the musician. These are unusual people, meaning they're doing something not everybody can do. I would say the same thing about uh, repairing uh, a, a an engine. There is a subtlety to working with materials, whether it's an eight-cylinder engine or uh, a spokeshave, that not everybody has the ability to do that, the discipline. I've said to young writers before that if we sit down in a classroom, I can teach you how to write a paragraph. I can show you how to use an almost appropriate adjective before a noun in the first sentence and gain the advantage, because it just slightly stands out, of allowing you to use the power of that adjective all the way through the paragraph. I can teach you, I can teach you, if you end a a paragraph or a sentence with a, a hard sound, a D or a T, that is effectively a period. If you end it, with a vowel, it leaves it open. So in terms of the rhythm of the paragraph or the rhythm of the narrative, you've got to be conscious all the way through of what the music is. It sounds esoteric. It's really not. But I could teach you all of that. And I could teach you how to to use the Chicago Manual of Style as far as it will take you. And then you are on your own with the development of an aesthetic that tells you no matter what the Chicago Manual says, there should be no comma here because you want the sentence to move faster. You can't pick it up overnight. You, you, have, you have to learn, if you will, the Chicago Manual of Style and then branch out from there as your own artistic vision develops. But when I would tell students things like that, what I could teach you, I would say, I cannot teach you discipline, and I cannot teach you hunger. And if you don't have those two things, then you're probably not going to be much of a writer. The the, the mm. discipline means that... Um, you stay with the draft until you've made it as good as you possibly can you don't bail because your friends are going out for beers you just can't do that mm-hmm. and the hunger i don't know this gets into an area that i'm i don't know if i think very clearly about it but lewis Laugham, when he was editing the editing harpers for many years he and i would talk about assignments And for a writer, uh, a woman or a man, making their living as a writer, you've got to make a living. So you, you hope that somebody will call you up and ask you if you would write something about XYZ. But what I learned was your eagerness to make a financial living can get in the way of what you should really be doing. So, I think that's why a lot of really good writers work in universities. They're not willing to write anything for anybody. If you do that by the time you're 40, you have no idea what you mean as a human being. So, Lewis um, would say that he prefers cross-assigning stories rather than assigning stories. And what he meant by that was instead of contacting a person well-known for writing about architecture, he contacts a writer who, in his mind, has a formidable and an interesting and a disciplined imagination and trusts that a so-called bright person will write very interestingly about a subject uh, that he doesn't know anything at all about. And when I began to get assignments from magazines, it was a very short period of my life where I realized I didn't have the patience or the forbearance to write somebody else's idea. And Lewis used to say, when a writer is passionate about a subject, the thing you have to do as an editor is make sure you stay out of the way. So, you you know, you're off writing about something, your imagination is working over time. And if an editor who doesn't see what you've been going through tells you to take the story in a different direction, it kills the instinct to write well about whatever it was. So, Mm -hmm. you know, that's why I would emphasize to students Discover what your passion is. Discover the the things that make your mind work at several levels simultaneously and at a sometimes blistering speed. That's where you want to be. Don't get confused and say, well, I want to be a nature writer because I love birds. What? In your hands, because you're not a bird the birds are offering you a different way to see the world. And if you become engaged with them, then you'll write something you never imagined before. They're the teachers. So though, you know, that, I guess I'm repeating myself, but you have to want to do it. You, you, You cannot want to do it sometime. And that goes for every artist. And You have to discipline yourself to get over the ordinary impediments in order to write well. And I I think I would say about, you know, I hardly ever wrote about myself when I was young. I wrote about what other people thought, what other people saw. And I always tried to leave the essay by saying, what do you think? Instead of, this is what you should think. Who who am I to say what somebody should think? I want to make it beautiful and have somebody move through the story and say oh, I don't really remember who wrote this but this really made me think about on and on and on. You know, that's the business of just disappearing as the writer. I guess I'm pretty wound up about it. But um <laughs> I um and I guess you know by today's standards I'm quote old-fashioned about this. But writing is a calling like painting is a calling or, or photography is a calling and it it becomes your whole life. I mean, look, look at how many of us who are artists and writers um, have lost marriages because of the furious fixation on the work. That's the unquenchable passion expressing itself through a human being.
2: So you, you, see the writer as a servant of the community and you talk about how now in the last decade or so you've been trying to give back to to students and i think about uh someone that we in utah here think is is one of our native sons wallace stegner yes and uh i know that you knew stegner and obviously knew his work could you tell me a little bit about your estimation of him him as a writer, as a mentor, as a as a human being, as an educator.
0: Uh, he was a model for me. You know, I, uh, I I say about Wendell Berry and and Wallace Stegner, they were two people uh, whom I never took a class from, but they taught me how to behave as a writer. They the way they conducted themselves, the sort of standards to which they held themselves and the depth of their integrity, was something I admired enormously. The first time I met Stegner, I was uh, in knots. I was so self-conscious. And I I met him at his home, and he extended his hand. and We shook hands, and I said, I I really must say something before we go any further. And in my clumsy, tongue-tied way, I tried to say to him how much I admired him, and that for younger writers, he set a standard or an example that I wanted to emulate. So I got through my tongue-tied paragraph of praise, and um, he said, uh, well, thank you. And Let's make it Wally now. Meaning you're Barry and I'm Wally and we go on from here. But he did me the great favor of not dismissing my praise of his work. I mean some writers say, oh no, you know, don't you know they shake it all off and, and don't recognize that the person offering the praise, it's very important to let them have their say and to respect. And if you don't like the person or you think they're crazy or they're talking about somebody that's not you or <laughs> what, whatever way they might uh, not be to your liking, that's still a human being. And they are expressing as well as they can what, what their admiration is all about. So you must respect it. You cannot dismiss it. You can't convey to them that they're less than anything. I think that the community of people whose primary metaphor is the non-human world are generally very respectful of each other, uh, affectionate to a, a greater degree than might be the case with. Uh, you know, I don't want to get myself in trouble here, but I think they're uh, that writers are not. They're more inclined to watch out for themselves and their careers, and less interested maybe in the camaraderie that should be there, or I think should be there. Maybe going back to your earlier question about, about universities and students, I have often wondered why are we here? Why are we in this university with this teacher? What's going on here? And what I tell the students is you have you have two things to be thinking about when you're at university. The first is what do I mean? What do I mean as a human being? What 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 way can I discover what it is that makes me who I am and focus on that in those early years in university? And the second thing is to discover how you can say what you mean as a human being. Maybe you want to say it as a physician, maybe you want to say it as uh, a chemist, maybe you want to say it as an artist, but those, those ideas, You need to discover what you mean, what you mean, not what somebody else does. What do you mean? What is your meaning as a person? And then you've you've got to find a way to articulate it. So, you know, there's students in university all the time who go through pre-med and then go on to something that has nothing to do with medicine. And I think in those situations, medicine or uh, biochemistry, whatever it would be, isn't there a metaphor? When I was in high school, sophomore or something, I remember I took a test called the Kruger Preference Test. And it, it, the point of it was to help you understand what you really wanted to be, not what your parents were telling you to be or where you thought you'd make the most money or something. When I took the test, the results came back and I was told that I should work in the Forest Service. And my parents were very upset because it, it wasn't, should be a lawyer, should be a doctor, should be a, a, a foundation executive or something like that. And I, I felt sheepish about it, but I knew that it was true. I wasn't gonna become work for the Forest Service But the 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 test managed to tap into something in me, and what I was saying in that test, those test questions was, my imagination is most deeply stimulated by the complexity of ecosystems. I don't know how many forest rangers talk like that, but I got it. I got it, and. When I would say to a student, you have to discover what you mean as a human being, then you have to discover how to say it. You have to learn the skill of saying what you mean. And when you do that, that's when you discover the metaphor that works best. I remember when I was a freshman in university, we, we were all to quickly dis- declare a major which is a ridiculous idea. You know, I began university as an aeronautical engineer because I, re- I didn't understand what all of these impulses in me meant. I thought they meant be an aeronautical engineer. No. <laughs> so I, I very quickly um, shifted into the humanities. But, but that's an example of somebody learning. I, I can't, I'm not driven by aeronautical engineering so that it will be deeply satisfying. I am driven by other things. And I think university advisors see this all the time and try to help somebody who thinks she wants to be a lawyer to say, no, you're confusing a lot of class issues and financial issues. You will become a lawyer and you will not have fun doing it. It will not be you. And by the time you're 40, you'll be burned out or you'll moved on to another career. The great thing would be to discover whatever a career is, to discover that early on. And then those first four years of college are serving the exploration of an idea, which is what do I mean by my life?
2: How about one more question? Because it's getting near an hour now. Yeah, we got can't a late start. You're getting tired. No, I'm
0: I'm all right. I'm I used to be able to manage ten balls in the air. Now it's more like six. So <laughs> I'm <laughs> no. <laughs> well, maybe Not somebody on the outside would say, "No, no, no. You could manage five, and now you can't manage two. <laughs> but i you know this is following up on something we talked about earlier i am somebody who's working at four or five things at a time you know t- today i will talk to you i just sent off a manuscript to a magazine uh so the last few details of that um i'm talking to somebody this i talked to somebody this morning about some details uh, with regard to the Barry Lopez Foundation for Art and Education. Um, I just finished a book and it was recommended to me by somebody on the committee to choose the Hawaii Fellow, the Lopez Hawaii Fellowship. So I'm doing those things and I am suffering some memory loss, I think. So I can't tell you all things I'm doing, but i i from morning until night i'm i'm trying to read a young writer's work and encourage them uh, i've got in my list today to call a woman who wrote a, a really marvelous book but it's the time of coronavirus so the launch is quiet and i want to make sure she gets more notice than she might otherwise get i want to talk to the executive director of the Academy of of, uh, Arts and Letters, because um, I I want to be sure that, I I want to explore the idea of what happens if those of us in the Academy say, I've done everything in terms of being noticed that I can do, now what? And realize that now is the time to um, to work with younger people, to to support them, to write blurbs for their books. I <laughs> I just thought, oh my God, do I want to read more books and write a blurb? But um, I'm, I am also finding out now that um, people who were very dear friends, who I camped and traveled with, um, they're dying. And, uh, I, I want to write, um, introductions and forwards and afterwards for books that are now coming out about their lives. It's a payback kind of thing. You know, it's a bow of respect toward a person who was, mm-hmm. even though you were the same age and going along at the same rate, they mentored you. And I think it's so important to, show your affection for those who mm-hmm. helped you when you were young. And when you get older, you've got to remember to, to allow that when it comes to you, but also reinforce it by spending more time wondering about the fate of young people. I mean, my God, if I was 25 today, I, I, I'd be in such a state of despair. And we can't let that despair develop in younger people. There's, there's something we can all do, or each of us who, go, you know, who end up in the American Academy of Arts and Letters, there's something each of us can do to keep the fire going, to, to, keep, to, to keep these ideas which are disparaged, not only by the current political administration, but by a large segment of American society that hate thoughtfulness, for example. We, we we have to keep the fire burning so that that material, that idea doesn't spread and um, get any energy. We've got to light the way for this the tag end of the Enlightenment, I guess, riddled though it was by prejudice.
2: <laughs> well, I think that would probably be a good place to, to end this, even though I have a thousand other questions. But I know you have a lot to do. And... I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed talking to you today and, and other times and and admire your work and appreciate you giving me an hour today um, and for this podcast.
0: Well, it's, you know, I, I respect what you're doing and the desire to get these kinds of ideas out to a larger audience um, is really important. It's not important about me. It, it's important at this time in our history to say that there are things we stand for, and if we don't take care of them, we will all die a miserable death. So you're working oh. at that today, and I'm working at what I do, and neither one of us in some sense has a choice. We, we, we chose this idea to take care of other people. We weren't doctors. We were educators and writers. And we have a bond uh, and an agreement to
1: take care of others. That was the writer Barry Lopez. Thank you, Barry, for everything. He was interviewed by Jim Aiton. Thank you so much, Jim. Our sound guy doing everything from A to Z is Ben Kilborne. Thanks, Ben. Our theme music is by two brothers, Jordan and Sean, who call themselves The Observatory. Stay tuned for our next podcast, where we'll continue to explore the Lake Powell pipeline by examining the 1922 Colorado River Compact with author Eric Kuhn. And we'll be talking with best-selling British writer, Richard Grant, about his new book, The Deepest South of All, about Natchez, Mississippi. I'm Logan Hebner. Thanks for listening and please stay safe.